Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Normally, I would do some review if this was a a typical series. Uh, I would review what we talked about last week a little bit at the beginning, just make sure everybody's up to speed. But uh, we have far too much to cover today, so we're going to just jump right into this, okay? And I want to tell you here at the beginning of this series that the Lord kind of led me to teach this in a different way than I've ever done before. Uh, Since there is so much ground to cover in this book, uh, I kind of wondered how we're going to get to it all. Um, It's like, well, we can either cover a lot in a short span of time, or we can have a 40-week series and take the entire year to talk about the book of Acts. Uh, But I didn't want to stay in it that long, so I wondered how I was going to cover it, and I felt led to highlight various statements and phrases throughout this book. There are statements that are made all through the book of Acts that will help us to grow as we follow the history of this book. So the way that we're going to tackle this each week is we're going to look at at least one statement from each passage. Okay, and I'm going to give, uh, I've written synopsis for each of these four chapter chunks, so I'm going to read at the beginning a little synopsis of what happens over these four passages each Sunday, and then we're going to take a statement out of each of these four chapters and, uh, and zero in that way. That way we'll be able to cover everything uh, in, a, in an efficient, quick manner. Does that make sense? All right, so uh, today we're going to begin tackling Acts chapters one through four. In chapter 1, we see Jesus spending his last moments with the disciples, preparing them for their ministry by prophesying about the coming of the Holy Spirit. As he ascends to heaven, the disciples are met by two angels who let them know that Jesus will return again in much the same way that he departed. They then return to the city of Jerusalem and gather, electing a man named Matthias to take the place of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. The church is now born. Chapter 2 opens on that same group of disciples, now expanded out to 120 people who are obediently waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out, though they have no idea what that will mean. Suddenly, a sound from heaven like wind overtakes the room that they are in, and they are all overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues, and their appearance has now changed. Each person looks like they have been personally consumed by a flame of fire. This noisy experience spills out into the street from the room that they are in and begins to draw attention from all of the religious Jews who are in Jerusalem that day for the day of Pentecost. They were celebrating the Hebrew Feast of Tabernacles. Peter, now equipped with boldness, that's what happens when you get baptized in the Holy Ghost and fire. Peter, now equipped with boldness, stands up and begins to loudly preach the gospel to an increasingly eager crowd. The result of that sermon is that 3,000 new souls get added to God's kingdom. You want to talk about an 
um, what's the word that I'm looking for? A logistical nightmare. You just went from 120 people to 3,120 people in a single sermon. And you thought the kids' ministry was taxed now. (laughs) The church now being established by the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That's very important. The church now being established by the arrival of the Holy Spirit begins to flourish and rapidly expand in Jerusalem. Chapter 3 reveals the healing of the lame man outside of the temple gate in Jerusalem, leading to Peter preaching his second recorded sermon. In Acts chapter 4, the church begins to experience its first taste of persecution as the religious establishment in the temple arrests Peter and John for healing this lame man, threatening them and commanding them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. This, of course, is completely ineffective in silencing the early church because what we see is that Peter and John coming from this uh, encounter with the Sanhedrin, we see them returning from this encounter and going straight into another prayer meeting where they ask God to grant them an even greater measure of boldness and ask for signs and wonders to be done by God's spirit. The place where they are meeting is shaken by the power of God and the gospel goes forward into the city with an even greater momentum. It's quite the start to the church. I think it's really interesting that God chose to birth his church with fireworks. Amen. Amen. God chose to birth his church with some demonstration. And, And we shouldn't think of that as being odd, by the way. Jesus loves to show off. Not because he needs the recognition, not because he is, you know, um, just looking for attention. He's not insecure. Y'all have figured that out, right? God's not insecure. He doesn't show off just to, you know, to flex for the other gods in the neighborhood. Amen. There are no other gods in the neighborhood. He's the only one. So he's not trying to show off for anybody. What he is trying to do constantly throughout all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is to demonstrate his goodness and his glory to the creation that he has made. As a matter of fact, I personally, my theological position on what God's purpose is, like what is God's grand purpose, I personally believe that his purpose is to demonstrate his goodness to his creation. Amen? Why did God make the trees? Why did he make mankind? Why did he make the universe? So that he had a platform from which to show somebody his goodness. He's so perfect and so amazing and so glorious and so good that he had to to create something so that something could be shown his goodness. Isn't that awesome? So God loves to demonstrate, and it's no surprise to us that he starts the early church with fireworks. We're going to start with Acts chapter 1. I have 33 minutes to do this, so y'all pray for me. Amen. (laughs) Four chapters in a half hour. Here we go. We're going to start with Acts chapter 1, and as I said to you, we're going to take a key phrase from each one of these chapters. However, I broke my rule with the first chapter. We're actually going to look at two things. But the key phrase that we want to zero in on in just a moment from chapter 1, we briefly touched on this, and it probably will not come as a surprise to you. The statement from chapter 1 is, but you shall receive power. It comes from Acts chapter 1, 8. 
And it says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost or ends of the earth. Now, before we dive into that verse, I want to comment on something from the first verse of chapter 1. Guys, if you'll put chapter 1, verse 1 up there. This is a super interesting thing. Luke starts the whole book, very first verse, can't go any farther back in Acts than this. He says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Uh, The word began here gets my attention, and I'll tell you why. It's because of the way that the Greek renders this verse. Y'all, if you've heard me preach for any length of time, you know that I, I love the Greek language. It was my favorite class in Bible college. It's one of my favorite things to do is to dive into the Greek. And one thing that's really peculiar about this is the way that the Greek renders this. Now, when we were in school, we were taught what theologians and scholars use our uh, laws of interpretation for Scripture. And we were taught this particular law called the law or the principle of first mention. So that means anytime you see something mentioned first in the Gospels or in the Bible anywhere, the first time a subject is brought to light in Scripture, it creates a precedent which sets the stage for all the other references to that thing, right? So like if you were to, if you were to look back in the beginning of the book of Genesis, you find all kinds of firsts. And those firsts help us to understand the rest of Scripture, The principle of first mention is very important. This is the first verse in the book of Acts, and it's peculiar the way this word began is used. The word began here in the Greek, y'all with me so far? Okay, good. The word began in the Greek is present active infinitive. What in the world does that mean? Thank you for that laugh from the children in the front row. Present active infinitive, what does it mean? When a word in Greek is present active. It means that it always stays in the present tense. This word began implies that Jesus began and is continuing to do and teach. Anybody else find that a little peculiar? That it's in the present active tense? It doesn't, you know, because we read it in English and we see it as purely past tense, right? Jesus began to do this in the book of Acts, or in, in the book of Luke, in the Gospels. But Luke writes this in such a way that we understand the precedent that's being established in this very first verse. It's that Jesus didn't just begin to do something in Luke and in in Mark and Matthew and John. It's not that Jesus just began to do something in the book of Acts, but he began and is continuing to do the things that he began to do. Can you say amen? You know, he began to do miracles. He began to minister the kingdom of God to people. He began to teach the heart of the Father and to demonstrate who he is. And here's the thing. This is present active. He has no intention of stopping. Amen? Amen. He has no intention of stopping. He's continuing to do the work that he began to do in the Gospels. And you might say, how in the world is he continuing to do the work? Well, through you and through me. He's not using his hands. He's using your hands to lay on the sick. He's not using your eyes to see the crowd and see the disparity of the humanity of the world. He's using your eyes to do it. He's not doing it with his. He's using your voice to preach his word. 
That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, it's no longer I that live, it's Christ that lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have a responsibility to continue what Jesus began. This tells me that Jesus never intended for his ministry to stop even after he was gone. Amen. Quick side note, too. Notice that the, word to, the words to do comes before to teach. I find it interesting that Jesus' works created an introduction to his teaching. How often did Jesus do something powerful that perplexed the crowd, and he could see that they were stunned, and so he had to stop and teach them what just happened? Isn't that amazing? Should be a precedent for us, too should be that you go out into the world and you begin to manifest the kingdom of God and people scratch their heads and go, what in the world just happened? I once was blind, but now I see. And then you stop and you say, let me teach you a little bit about the God who heals blind eyes. And then you lead them to Jesus. Miracles are the dinner bell for salvation. Amen. I'll just leave that juicy rabbit trail alone because I got a lot to do. One key to the entire book of Acts is found in verse 8. Of chapter one, I said this last week. If you don't get, uh, if you don't get this verse, you won't get the rest of the book. If you don't get verse one, chapter one, verse eight, it's gonna, you're going to struggle to embrace the reality of the rest of the book, and you'll struggle even harder to put yourself in the story. Amen. I want to, I want to say this too. If you don't get anything else out of this entire series, please get this verse. Okay, please get this verse. Jesus intends for his church to minister with power. Amen. Let's read this one more time together. But you shall, everybody say shall. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Pay close attention to that word upon. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Notice the language here. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is very different from when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Very different. And we have to draw that distinction. I believe it was Frankie and I were just talking about this a couple weeks ago, weren't we, bro? The difference between the Holy Spirit being in you and the Holy Spirit being upon you. We must take note of the fact that the disciples in this verse are already saved. They already have the Holy Spirit living in them. I don't have time to go prove it to you, but go back and read the last two chapters of the book of John. Jesus appears in the midst of them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes upon them. This is the moment that the disciples get saved. It was the first people that got saved in the whole world. So they've already got the Holy Spirit living in them, but there is a significant difference between the Holy Spirit being in us and the Holy Spirit coming upon us. When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, you receive righteousness. You receive a new identity. You receive a place in the family of God. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you receive his power. Big difference. Amen? Big difference. It should be a daily prayer of ours that we ask for a fresh outpouring of his spirit upon us today. Lord, I need power for today. What you gave me yesterday was great. 
but I need power for today. I'm not going to be sustained by just what you gave me five years ago. Lord, I remember when you baptized me in the Holy Spirit. I remember the first time I spoke in tongues. I remember how powerful it was. I was four years old. I can't live off that. I'm going to be 40 in a couple years. I need something for today, God. I need a fresh outpouring, a fresh deposit of your spirit upon me. Amen. Can you say amen to that this morning? This is so important for us to understand because one of the things, remember, that the Holy Spirit said to me when I was preparing for this series, he said, if you'll teach people how to receive the power of my spirit, evangelism in Boone will be easy. Because the Holy Spirit will take all the work out of you reaching out to your neighbor. He'll take all the work out of you talking to the person next to you that you work with. Amen. He takes all the labor out of it because he, he, he brings his spirit and he comes and hovers over you. And all of a sudden, things start happening that you can't do on your own. Amen. Anybody try to heal cancer by themselves before? Can't do it. It's impossible. Right? We need the Holy Spirit and we need his power. Now, Acts chapter 2 continues what Jesus began to talk about in Acts chapter 1. We find these guys, as I said, in the upper room praying. There's 120 of them there. They're ready for whatever is next. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until you get the promise of the Father. They're like, sounds great. And then Peter turned to John, the heck's the promise of the Father? I don't know. Keep smiling. You know, and it's like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Just let's, let's hang out in this upper room and just, Jesus told us to stay here. So let's just stay here uh, until something cool happens. We don't know what it's going to look like. Hey, Pete, why don't you lead us in prayer for a few minutes? Right? There they are in one accord, fasting and praying. If you grew up Pentecostal like me, you know Acts chapter two. I don't have to preach it to you. You, you know it. But the key phrase that we want to take from this chapter actually comes from farther down in verse 16. And the phrase is, this is that. This is that. Say, what is what? <laughs> this is that, huh? What are you talking about? Look at it on the screen. This is what was spoken. In fact, the old King James says, this is that which was spoken. I see some smiles in the audience, and I know why you're smiling. This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. You see, what Peter does, when it comes time for Peter to stand up and start to preach, he starts to quote the Old Testament prophet Joel. And God said through Joel that what would happen is that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So Peter, as soon as this crazy thing starts happening, this crazy intense sound, a rushing mighty wind, all these people look like they're on fire physically. Everybody's speaking in a tongue that they, they're like, well, I don't know where this is coming from. This is different. And Peter stands up amongst all of them and says, guys, I know what this is. This is the thing that the prophet Joel told us about, that in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, old men so, uh, your young men shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And upon my men servants and upon my maidservants, I shall pour out my spirit in those days. Peter recognizes it and says, y'all, this is that. Remember what Joel said? This right here, it's that. Now, sometimes people get nervous when we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit because they don't want to get weird and flaky. Flaky. 
Y'all ever met a flaky person? Yeah? Amen. <laughs> Let me put you at ease for a moment. Can I put you at ease? Did you know that the power of God is not for the purpose of making you strange? <laughs> Selah. Did you know that the power of God is not for the purpose of making you extra mystical? So that you look at the world like this. Ooh. Casper the friendly ghost. Now the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit is not to make us weird. It's to make us effective. Amen. It's to make us effective. Folks get particularly nervous when you talk about the gifts of the Spirit or preach from this passage because it deals with speaking in tongues. It deals with, uh, I mean, people looking like they're on fire. That's odd, right? That's different. I mean, what would happen if you came to church on Sunday and all of a sudden everybody looked like they were physically on fire? Cack would be into it. <laughs> Amen. Some folks would get excited. Some people would get really nervous. And I get it. Listen, I get it. Sometimes people have a reason to be skeptical because I've met some folks who are weird and don't have any power. Amen. I've met some folks who just do the churchy thing to do because it was the tradition of whatever you know, background that they came from. And you're like, man, unless you're barking like a dog in the service, the Holy Spirit didn't show up. It's like, well, did anybody get transformed? Oh, no? Okay, so you just did that to show off. Yeah, Amen. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good now. Amen. Listen, anytime you see a counterfeit, it's proof of the original. Anytime you see a counterfeit, it's proof of the original. Why does the bank know how to like, uh, sniff out the counterfeit $100 bills when they come across? It's because they're so used to dealing with the real thing. I remember hearing this years ago that, that when you're trained as a bank teller, I mean, it's kind of cashless society these days, but when you're trained as a bank teller, you only use real money. Why? Because they want you to get the feel of it. So that when, when, you know, Johnny Criminal comes in and tries to slip a fake $100 in, in there, you can go, oh, mm, that's not real. That doesn't feel like the real thing. Why? Because I'm so accustomed, I'm so conditioned by the authentic that I can see the counterfeit a mile away. Amen? I like what Pastor Mark Driscoll says. He says the Holy Spirit isn't going to make you weird. He's going to make you more like Jesus. <laughs> Amen? He's not going to make you weird. He's going to make you more like Jesus. Having the baptism in the Holy Spirit doesn't make us weird. It makes us swim upstream. The power of God in your life causes you to have hope when the rest of the world is having fear. The power of God, the baptism of the Spirit, you being able to pray in other tongues and touch heaven with that prayer doesn't make you a weirdo. It means that when the rest of the world is sinking, you're somehow sustained and you're rising. Amen. It flips life around and begins to, to bring the realities of the kingdom to pass in your life. And it's something we should be hungry for. Now, we'll talk at length as we go through this book about what it means to pray in tongues, why it's biblical, and all of that. But I can't do it all this morning because I still have two more chapters to cover. Okay, Acts chapter 3, we move forward. The church at large has begun to grow 
substantially. And the daily and weekly regimens have become established. Remember, some time is passing here. This all didn't just happen in a weekend, right? Now, the, the, the daily routines and the regimens of the church have become established now. And Peter and John are headed to the temple for a daily, everybody say daily, daily prayer meeting. I always hear people talk, and Sean and I have joked about this for several years now. We always hear people talk about, we just got to get back to doing it the way the early church did it. Be careful what you ask for, because they went to church every single day. Every single day. There was a hunger. You know, some people ask the question, why in the world don't we see the miracles happen like we do in some other countries, in some third world countries? How come we don't see the power of God the way we see it in India or Africa or South America? Well, maybe it's because those people had to walk three days with no shoes on to come to sit and listen to somebody preach. And after three hours of preaching, they weren't saying, I got to get out of here. They were saying, please give me more. Maybe it was the disparity of their hunger that caused them to receive something that we won't even cross the street for in America because we have everything so easy. Amen. Soapbox. Let me get on my soapbox for a minute. Sometimes we just got it too easy, y'all. Sometimes we got it too convenient. Well, I just, I can't be that. You know, I just don't like to, I just don't like to go over there. That preacher preaches for 50 minutes. Just a little too long, man. I just can't get a table at Los Arcos when we finish. <laughs> Listen, I understand. I know it's frustrating, right? It's frustrating to not be the first in line. You know what's more frustrating? Living with a disease that you can't get rid of, even though the Bible tells you that you can. I would rather be inconvenienced by my hunger for the things of God than to have whatever else the world will offer me. What if we just stepped outside of ourselves for just long enough to say, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to no matter what it costs. If it costs my comfort, great. If it costs me a relationship, great. If it costs me some Netflix time, great. If it costs me time on social media or whatever those games that my children play on their phones, if it costs me that time, okay. They used to say this growing up, the juice is worth the squeeze. Amen. Now the church has become more established. Peter and John are headed there to, uh, to the temple there for the daily prayer meeting. They come across a lame man on the way. And the key phrase that we take out of this passage comes from that encounter. And it's this, what I do have, I give you. I like, I like certain things from the old King James. Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. You can't give what you don't have. I remember learning this from John Maxwell years ago when I was learning about leadership for the first time and reading some of his materials. He says it all the time. You can't give what you don't have. If you're insecure, you can't give security to people. Not as many amens on that one. If you're, if you're, if you're constantly frustrated, you're not going to give joy to people. The reality is you minister, if you're writing this down, or if you're taking notes, write this down. You always minister from what and who you are. Amen? When they were, when they were um, laying hands on me to be uh, ordained into the ministry, one of the gentlemen who was a, a big figure in my life, a, a voice in my life for many years, 
he said to me this. He said, always understand you will only ever minister from a place of strength. That every place of weakness in your life, you will only minister weakness. So you need to shore up the areas of weakness in your life and turn them into strengths by the power of the Spirit so that you can minister strength to people. Because you only give what you have. You can say the right thing in the wrong way and minister the wrong thing. Amen. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. I've seen a lot of offended preachers in my time. I've seen a lot of people preach out of frustration. Guess what? The people they listen to get frustrated. You only give what you have. And Peter understands this. He says, such as I have, give I thee. Or in other words, what I do have, I give you. You can't give what you don't have. I can't give something I don't possess. You also can't give, watch this, you also can't give what you don't know that you have. Just as important, just as valuable as of a principle. You can't give what you don't have. You also can't give what you don't know that you have. Yeah. Amen? I mean, if, if you knew that there was a bunch of gold bricks buried in your yard, you wouldn't worry about finances. Matter of fact, you might be pretty liberal in your giving. You might say, hey, you know what? So-and-so has a need at the church. I got all these gold bricks buried in the backyard. Why don't I just take care of that need for you? Right? But if you didn't know that they were buried there, you wouldn't be so apt to be like, let me take care of that for you, would you? So many Christians live below the standard that God has made available to them because they simply don't know what they have. They got gold bricks buried in the backyard and they don't realize it. Come on, you got the God of heaven living on the inside of you. You got the one who created everything. I like to say it this way, just to remind myself, when I get in a tight spot or I get frustrated or discouraged, I like to say this, my dad owns the universe. Amen, my dad owns the universe, okay? You living a life of not enough? My dad owns the universe. Your dad owns the universe. How stressed would you be if Warren Buffett was your father? You think you'd worry about, you know, paying the light bill? Dad, I need some resources. Give me some of that 85 billion or whatever it is that he's worth now. Help, help a brother out. No, if you knew that the resource was available to you, you wouldn't be afraid. So why do we get afraid of things like sickness? Why do we get afraid of, of not having enough? Why are we not willing to take faith risks when the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives on the inside of us? Amen. You can't give what you don't have, and you also can't give what you don't know you have. There was never a doubt in Peter's mind as to what he possessed. Such as I have, give I thee. What I have, I'm giving it to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Now, this situation, as powerful and as amazing as it was, causes Peter and John to get arrested. What a bummer. You know what's interesting? Peter and John never for a second seem to doubt whether or not what they're doing was the will of God. 
You see, sometimes we do ourselves a disservice because we step out in faith and we begin to act and then we meet some resistance from the enemy and we pull back and we go, oh, that must not have been God's will. Must not have been it. When we started this church, we started with two families and just under 500 bucks. My wife and I were broke. We were in debt. We had given everything away that we had brought with us to, to this state. We moved up here from Florida, and, and we had all this stuff to start a church, kids ministry materials and sound equipment and all this stuff. We'd given all that away during the time that we were here waiting to get our church started. And so when it came time to actually start, see, I believe it was totally the Lord and his planning because I didn't have anything to rest on. I didn't have anything to put my confidence in other than God. And so we got together with a few people, literally a few people, and said, you know what? We're going to start a church. Here we go. Now, if I would have stopped in week three because we didn't have 400 people show up, because I felt a little bit of resistance, because there was some discouragement that I had to deal with along the way. I was sharing this with Sean and Gracie last week after church. I don't give two rips how many people are in the seats anymore when I preach. I used to care about it a lot. But you know what? I got so accustomed to preaching to eight people, 10 people, five people, 14 people. I don't care anymore because as long as it's me and the Holy Spirit, God can do amazing things, whether there's three people in the room or 3,000 people in the room. And the point is when you are met with resistance and when you are met with discouragement, it's not the time to question whether or not I'm doing the thing God called me to do. It's time to double down and say, devil, go ahead, push on me a little more. I'm going to kick you the teeth a little harder this time, and we're going to get 100 people saved this week. Double down and shove it back to him. Amen? Now, Peter and John get arrested. This would have been a very convenient time for them to back off. But what do they do? They go before the religious court called the Sanhedrin. The notable phrase that we read from this chapter comes from verse 13. If we could put verse 13 up on the screen, please. This is an amazing scripture. We'll, I've got about six more minutes and then we'll be wrapping up. Acts chapter four, verse 13. Now when they saw the what? Boldness. What do we say is essential in the kingdom of God? Boldness. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, watch this, this is amazing. They perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. Isn't that awesome? Now, let me break that down for you real, real quick. Why would the Sanhedrin look at Peter and John and say, these guys are uneducated and untrained? Why would they say that? It's because of this. In Hebrew culture and in the Hebrew system of that time, everybody wanted to be in the temple. Everybody wanted to work and be a priest. Everybody wanted to... uh, It was like the highest job you could pursue in that culture was to be a member of the Sanhedrin, to be a priest in the temple. But here's the thing. In order to get into the Levitical school for priestly ministry, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible verbatim, word for word. And you had to be able to recite those things completely verbatim. That meant that a lot of little boys, which by the way, you had to do this by the time you were 13, A lot of little boys sure didn't qualify. 
I don't know about you, but I can't quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy start to finish without missing a word. It meant that there was a very small window that you had to get through in order to become a member of the Sanhedrin. And guess what that made you? Proud. That made you looking down at your nose at the rest of the world. Oh, Peter and John, they didn't qualify for Hebrew school. What did they do? Oh, smelly fishermen. Uneducated, untrained. Get these peasants out of here. That's the attitude of the Sanhedrin which is part of the reason why they were so threatened by Jesus. Part of the reason why they were so threatened by the ministry of the apostles is because all of a sudden the power of God gets on this group of 120 people and they start having instantly more influence in the culture than the, than the Hebrew Sanhedrin. Isn't that incredible? So that's why they look at them and they, they perceive they're uneducated. You know, they walk in and Gamaliel's like, what smells like fish? Oh, it's these guys that fish all the time. Okay, these are uneducated and untrained men. But here's the thing. The power of God and the boldness of God that rested on Peter and John stumped the Sanhedrin. Why? Do you remember we said this last week? Because you can't argue with fruit. You can't argue with fruit. They got this guy healed and nobody could say anything about it. So watch this. Here's the statement. When they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Here's the statement. They realized that they had been with Jesus. I remember where I was the first time I read this verse. I was in a, I was in a La Quinta hotel. And I remember this because I wrote this scripture down on that little pad and pen that they give you in a hotel. And I was like, oh my God. They couldn't argue with Peter and John because they realized that they had been with Jesus. This creates for us a picture and presents to us a question that we have to come face to face with. And that question is this. Do people realize that you've been with Jesus? Do people realize that I've been with Jesus? Is there anything in my life that would be an indicator that I've spent time with the Savior? Is there any, is there any evidence, is there any residue of Jesus that's on me that people could look at and be like, that guy's different, that lady's different? In order to effectively evangelize our city, people have to know that we've been spending time with Jesus. There's got to be a residue of the goodness and the glory of God on our lives that makes us some kind of different from the rest of this world. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and try not to be noticed. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and swim upstream. When you encountered despair and hopelessness, go with hope and faith and love and strength and power and glory. Why in the world does, does the church try so hard to be like the world? Why do we do that? Why do we try so hard to be like the world when Jesus called us to be the total opposite? Amen. I've told you this story before, but um, I was working at a company down in Florida. This was years before, many years before I got married. I think I was probably... 19 or 20, 
and I was working at this company, and this guy that I was working with, John McDonald, nice dude, he was having a headache one day, real bad. And I saw him sitting over at his cubicle, and I was like, hey, man. It's like, you want me to pray for you? I told him, I said, I said, Frankie, I'm a Christian. You want me to pray for you? He looks up at me, and he goes, you're a Christian? And I was like, dang, that's not good. That's not good. I made a decision that day. I don't want anybody ever to ask me that question again that way. I don't ever want there to be a doubt in anybody's mind. Now, I'm not going to hit you over the head with my Bible the first time we meet, but, I'm, but I am going to try to do something that brings the gospel into our relationship. My mom, when she got saved, she, uh, she was dating a guy, not my dad, thank God, that didn't last. Um, she was dating this guy and they, they had all started coming to this coffee house ministry. And um, she and this guy, his name was Joe Zanoni. That ought to tell you what part of New York I'm from. Um, but they, she and Joe went to this party. This was back in the 80s or the 70s when they used to, um, used to have parties to sell stuff like Tupperware and cookware. And, you know, some of the older audience will remember that you would go to so-and-so's house to have a Tupperware party or a Pampered Chef party or one of these things. So my mom and Joe got invited to go to this, I think it was Lifetime Cookware party. And it just happened that all the people in this coffee house were the ones that were there having this party, and they were all saved, and my mom and Joe were not saved. They were the only people there that weren't filled with God. And so my mom still tells this story of her testimony that she went to this meeting and she was sitting there. They weren't talking about Jesus. Nobody preached. They were having a, a Tupperware party. They were, having, they were trying to sell cheap plastic stuff. And yet the anointing and the glory of God and the presence of God that was on the people in that Tupperware meeting or whatever it was, cookware meeting, was profound enough that when my mom went home that night, she went into her room, got out my grandmother's Bible, which was completely in Italian, and sat down and said, Lord, if you're real, whatever those people have is what I want in my life. She said the glory of God came into her room. She asked Jesus into her heart with nobody preaching to her and nobody leading her in a prayer. That's called residue. That's what made the Sanhedrin go, we can't say anything about this miracle because these dudes have been with Jesus. Is there anything on your life? Is there anything in your world that the outsider would look at and say, you know what? Something different about her. There's something different about him. I don't know what it is. Sometimes it rubs me the wrong way. Sometimes it confuses me. Sometimes it fills me with hope. I don't know what it is, but that guy, that girl, that lady's got something on her. I want that in my life. We quoted Romans chapter five at the beginning of this. It's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. So I have one question for you. When people look at your life, do they realize that God is good? When people look at your, your testimony, do they, do they know that God is good? Do they recognize they've been with, that you've been with Jesus? Amen.
I don't know about you. Seems like more than anything these days, I want people to know who I am. And I want people to know who Jesus is in me. That's what I mean when I say I want people to know who I am. I want them to be able to look at me and there be no confusion and no doubt in their minds as to who I serve. Amen. Let's stand up to our feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.